that's been going through my house too. I, my oldest daughter's 12 and she's had a cold seemingly for the past few days, but it's really hard to tell because our temperature fluctuations this time of year are so wild. So uh, it started off in the high thirties this morning and it's going to be 64 later today. Oh my God. Um, so yeah, it's, there is no dressing appropriately. There is, I mean, your body doesn't know what to do. So you're just, you're like, am I actually sick or do I just feel weird because the temperature changes? Yeah. Yep. That's, uh, that's what we're going to go into right now. It's been pretty cold. That's funny. You're getting up to the sixties when I'm over here. It's, I think the high will be 40 at most today. Um, it's just, just crazy. And then I'm going into 60 degree weather. So I will be happy for that. <laughs> I'm, I'm in a week uh, heading to Palm Springs in California. So that'll be uh, a nice break from our high sixties weather with a seventies weather. Uh, but yeah, that's just like typical here. My kids always complain like, I hope it snows at Christmas. I'm like, it's never going to snow at Christmas. The only time we get snow is in like February and March, if at all. You know, so get over it, kids. Like Christmas songs are like, and by the way, this is not only semi the Christmas episode, but the last episode of season four of Data Plus Love. So congratulations. But um, like Christmas songs are all like, because like, most of them are like sort of just sort of generically winter songs. They're also generically Northern Hemisphere winter songs. And beyond that, they're more like Victorian England Christmas songs because they're all about like the frost and the lampposts and stuff like that. I'm like, dude, like I'm wearing a light jacket and the leaves might be done falling by Christmas. Like, can I get a song that better represents that at Christmas? <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah, I uh, we just got we went to Disney in November. That was the latest I've ever gone somewhere that warm in Florida. And uh, we were just walking around even the Tampa area and it was just like summer and I could definitely see the appeal. And I was thinking to myself, um, I don't I don't want to go home. <laughs> so warm. I don't want to leave. But at Disney, they were playing Christmas music. And they had the tree and um, I think they did like, I guess they do it every night, some like nightly Christmas song thing. Um, but it was just bizarre that the whole park was playing Christmas music throughout the day. And I'm here in like a tank top and, and pants and just like, this is summer. It's, it's not real. This is so weird. Uh, oh, yeah. Exactly that. It's just like, especially growing up on the East Coast, um, it's like it's always cold. I'm always, I'm used to it. Being in New York, it's more and more like it was always just freezing with snow and yeah we used to have some white christmases but not anymore um maryland doesn't really get that either <laughs> we actually went to disney um in october like we haven't been in quite a long time and both my girls had basically forgotten um like what it was like even though they've both been like more than once like my my wife's family is kind of a disney family so like mm -hmm. they're they're steeped in this it's like it's like their religious ritual almost so like that we went after several years of not going and the kids, it was like going for the first time, but we did um, in October, you know, they've got everything decked up with Halloween's everywhere. And we did Mickey's not so scary Halloween party, which is a special extra paid event in the evening. One night they closed the park early to the, to, to everybody else, unless you've ponied up the extra money to do this. And essentially the selling point is um, lower attendance. So you can get on rides easier um, several, uh, like a, a special parade and special shows at the castle and trick or treating. And, um, my oldest daughter 
So we were there with extended family, like my my wife's uh, sister and her kids uh, and her husband and uh, my mother-in-law. And like for my my sister-in-law's family, they've done this like multiple times. Like their their family goes like three or four times a year. So it's at the point where like their kids like, oh, yeah, this is here and this is here. Like it's not even like it's special anymore. It just is. Um, so like they're like, this is what we do. We go stand here and do this thing. And then we go here and do that thing. And like. My oldest is like, okay, because she wants to appear cool to her cousins. And my youngest is like, I am so bored with all like, I don't want to sit here and watch this parade. So like my wife and I broke off with the younger one and we just tore through rides like crazy. Like we rode Big Thunder like twice in five minutes. You know, we rode like every ride in Adventureland in 20 minutes. You know, it's just tearing through stuff. And my oldest daughter at the end of the night after trick or treating with her cousins comes back with a bag. I'm not joking with 25 pounds of candy like that's how much can like it was like i'm holding my hands so they the fingertips barely appear on screen to indicate like the width of my like the entire size of my torso just candy and it's it was just so surreal i would i have no desire to ever do this party again because it was not that much less crowded but the difference is normally at disney there is always a sense of frenzy because there are many people there where they know this is going to be their only time there. And they feel a lot of extra stress to do everything and to be everywhere. And, you know, you've seen that family where they're running along and they're yelling at one of the kids that wants to stop. Like, we don't, you know, it's like now imagine that cranked up to 11 at night with sugar. Um, and that's what it was like. And I'm like, oh, I don't want to do this again. <laughs> yeah. I can only imagine that does that sounds crazy. Um, Halloween is one of the times I did want to go, so it's good to know I will not participate in that part of the Halloween trip. <laughs> you know, like go for Halloween, enjoy the Halloween stuff, but maybe skip that. Or if you do do that, like choose your own adventure. Like one of the big selling points was that at the castle they had a big show with like the Sanderson sisters and Jack Skellington. And I don't even remember his name, like the voodoo man from Princess and the Frog, who's got like the great songs, who's voiced by Tony Todd. Like, you know, I got friends on the other side, like that guy, like, you know, he's got he's got like the good song in that movie. But like, yeah, like they had a like a spooky show. And it's like, I realized, like, I was born in the early 80s. Like, you're a bit younger than me. Like, my wife's and I are basically about the same age. And it's like for our generation, like, I don't know if it's true for like you. So tell me if you feel this way. But for like ladies, my wife's age, like Hocus Pocus was like a huge cultural moment for them. Like they love Hocus Pocus. And like I like they don't understand that it didn't translate over to guys as much. Like you have Hocus Pocus, right? I'm like, yeah, I mean, it was a movie. Like I remember seeing it like it was fine. <laughs> Yeah. Yep. No, Hocus Pocus was one of the staples of my me growing up too. Okay. Um, I was, I guess, early, so early nineties baby, but, um, yeah, Hocus Pocus, I grew up watching the one. It's so funny. I have one like that too, where it just, it did not translate. <clears throat> it was practical magic. So I grew up watching practical magic. That's like a Sandra Bullock, Nicole Kidman, um, movie that I guess was based off a book, which I had no idea was a book. And um, maybe about four years ago around Halloween, I told my fiance that I wanted him to watch it because I grew up watching it. And we both sit down to watch it. And one, he's 
he turned around and was like, this is terrible. And I was like, it's not that great. <laughs> it's not as great as I remember. But he had never heard of it either. Um, it was definitely one of those staples that we watched every year. And then it's one that just didn't age. It just, it had no, the plot had a lot of holes. A lot of book movies kind of do that, where it's just like, you move it along, but you don't notice that when you're a kid watching that. So um, yeah, I totally get it. But I, I did grow up watching Hocus Pocus as well. <laughs> I mean, I it's like if I were to try to dissect like it's it's ticking whatever box I think it's it's like Disney's drag show, essentially. You know, it's like it's a sing along musical with women with very vibrant makeup and huge hair and like poofy dresses. My wife uh, has a Winifred uh, Sanderson costume that she wore for Halloween the other year, and she wanted to wear that to Disney. And I'm like, dude, like it's going to be 85 degrees. You will pass out. Like, don't do it. Like, I understand where you're coming from, but do not do this. Like, it's going to be a mistake. Um, but yeah, it's like, like, I get it. And like, there's, you know, my wife was like into really into like footloose and uh, dirty dancing and stuff like that. And it's like, it's one of like, there's sort of stuff that like, not universally, but primarily like those movies resonated more with women. And there's some movies that resonated more with men. Like, all the bros that talk about like fight club. It's like, Oh man, fight club. It's like ladies like, yeah, oh, great. We're talking about fight club again. It's, yeah. Yeah. You know, stuff just happens that way sometimes, but like not universally, but clearly some stuff is designed with a target audience and it really hits the sticks. But yeah, I thought that was interesting. Like that hocus pocus has had this huge revival nightmare nightmare. Um, before Christmas, it came out when I was in middle school Disney didn't even release it as a Disney movie. They released it as a touchstone movie because like, yeah, this is kind of creepy and weird. Like we don't really want our fingerprints on this. And then like somehow hot topic kept it alive for 25 years to the point where Disney's like, we need like scary stuff for Halloween. Like that thing that like the goth kids wear, like let's, that's a Disney thing now, you know? Yeah. Yep. We, I saw some, very large Jack Skellington decorations this year, like maybe um, 15 foot tall skeletons wow. that were just overarching houses. And yeah, uh, my nephew is very into uh, the Nightmare Before Christmas. And I wasn't that much growing up either, um, but he's super into it and he's uh, about eight. So it's just crazy how that it, it just revived. But that's that's everything right fashion and everything else it just it recycles and even music i mean songs just recycle too <laughs> everything I, recycles with a new flavor <laughs> i mean for sure like if it's not covers of something like you now have like retro style music like we had the folk scene of a few years ago you have like synth wave which is essentially optimized 80s synth music with saxophone solos like yeah, it's like it's so weird, like big band revivals were a thing in the early 2000s, like Michael Bublé's whole like ascendance and stuff. So, yeah, it's kind of interesting how, you know, stuff will get recycled um, and just sort of brought back um, to that end. I know that you are big into gaming with Games Night Viz and stuff like do you remember like what the first game was, whether it be like physical or video or what have you that just really like captured your imagination? Yeah. Um, I always had a handheld gaming system, but I feel like the one even at a young age that I remember specifically the music and the intro of the way that they told the story that like grabbed me was the original Streets of Rage on Sega. 
Really? Um, that was one of my favorite games. I still play it. They have like an iPhone app of it. So I play it sometimes on iPhone. Um, and surprisingly can't always beat it. So it's still, it's still as difficult as it was back then. But it was just the way that they brought the music in. They did like the scroll of the story, introducing the characters very early on. I mean, maybe I had to be maybe like six or something. And I just always gravitated back towards that game. And me and my brother would always play it together too. So it was just something for us to do. But that was probably the like entry point for me of like, oh man, this is this is my game. I love this game. <clears throat> and I still do. Because you don't always still like replay those older ones, but that one I will still play. So like a brawler beat em up style game where you're, yep. you know, it's and cooperative two player back at that time was really novel too. like it wasn't something that a lot of games had outside of arcades. So like Streets of Rage, um, like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the arcade game and stuff like that. Yeah. These were games that previously most things, if they were two player, is really just you alternating with someone else, which was effectively just one player with turns. But like these were games where you actually had you both controlling someone on screen. And also some degree of either cooperation or competition. I mean, there were games like Battletoads on the original Nintendo, which had an impossible like second or third level. I think third level with these like speeder bike things. But like you could actually like hit your teammate. So like you're ostensibly working together. But like if you and your sibling or parent get pissed off at each other, there's not a lot to stop you from hitting them with a crowbar, throwing them off a cliff. And this sounds really violent, but it's it's cartoony good time. Like this is this is goofing off. So that's really interesting. Like I was also um, I was a Sega Genesis kid too. My first uh, console I ever had was a Nintendo Entertainment System that my parents got for me in probably like 1989 when I was about eight or nine years old. Um, I guess I was eight years old, and it was like the big deal at the time. Like Nintendo had been around for a little while, but that was sort of the moment they were sort of peaking in terms of cultural impact to the point where. If you were a kid asking your parent for one, like it was hard for them to deny that this was a thing. Um, and it's interesting, like looking back at the history of gaming, this isn't something I realized until I was an adult. Like I knew Atari had existed, but I didn't realize the significance of it. And I also didn't realize that Atari had basically almost killed gaming as a whole. So they had such poor quality control uh, with things like the E.T. adventure, which was so unplayable that people widely rejected the idea of home consoles and gaming at one point. There's like, well, that was, we tried that. I mean, like there were, there was a section of desert with just ET video games. Like it was that poor performing uh, to the point where it tainted the brand. It's, it's almost where I feel like maybe superhero movies are headed in the current moment where uh, like we had back in like 1997, Batman and Robin by Joel Schumacher, which was so radioactively bad People like let's not uh, let's not do superheroes or at the very least like we have to stay as far away from this as possible. like people thought like we might never see another Batman movie and that's crazy because Batman is probably top two superheroes of all times in terms of public consciousness but yeah like Nintendo hit and it was a big deal and when it came time for me to upgrade my parents like we're not buying you another one we already did that and I was saving my own money and you know it was either the Super Nintendo or the Sega Genesis and Sega was far more competitive on price at the time because that was part of their initiative to try to break into the U.S. market. I don't know if you've read the book Console Wars, um, but it's I amazing. And there's um there's a video there's a a series on it too, right? I have it like mm -hmm. wish wishlisted and watchlist, but I never watched it yet. 
Yeah, um, I actually had the author on a couple of years ago on the podcast. Um, he and I are Twitter friends, and I convinced him to come on. Um, Blake J. Harris. Uh, but it's really interesting because Sega of Japan, you know, was trying to make inroads into the U.S., but Nintendo basically had the market entirely locked up. And actually, Nintendo lost some lawsuits from monopolistic practices. Like if you would carry competitors' goods at, like, say, Walmart, they would accidentally not ship you stuff. Um, so they lost a lawsuit. And in the settlement for the lawsuit where they were supposed to pay money out to customers, they said, could we do, like, gift cards instead? And the court said that was cool. So they actually built their monopoly even further off of their settlement. It was wild. But, like, Sega... Um, basically hunted down the Mattel um, executive who had brought Barbie and Matchbox cars back from the dead on a Hawaii vacation and said, hey, we've got some really cool technology we want to show you. Can we like bring you over to, you know, Tokyo while you're here and show you our stuff? And he was really impressed by like the Sega Genesis and some of the other stuff they were doing. And um, he created, you know, basically spun out Sega of America and that's where we got like Sonic the Hedgehog from. It's where we got uh, all the Sega marketing from that was sort of iconic. And because they had much less budget than Nintendo and were a scrappier competitor, they had to take like huge marketing risks and gambles. So Walmart didn't want to carry their product. So they went to Arkansas and bought a storefront in a shopping center and just filled it with TVs and Segas. So the kids would go there and play them after school for free. They bought the seatbacks and, and the stadiums. So everything in town said Sega on it to the point where these executives would go home for dinner at the night at night. And all their kids would talk about is how cool Sega was They're like, what is the Sega thing? Like, I don't know about this to the point where that when they came back and offered again, like, yeah, I mean, like my kid won't stop talking about this Sega thing. Like we must, we got to do this. That's yeah. awesome. It's a really cool business book. That's uh, a, a gaming history book. That's also that. So it tells stories from both the Nintendo and uh, Sega perspectives. And it's interesting, kind of like Genghis Khan, um, who conquered so much of the world. And then his empire started to fall by the time his grandchildren took over. Like they didn't have like, the, I guess the eye of the tiger, like he did. They didn't, they didn't, you know, they were sort of fat and happy and the empire crumbled. Uh, Sega fell to infighting between Sega of Japan and Sega USA. Um, so Sega USA had built up 55% of the US market share. At one point, they actually had more market share than Nintendo. And then it just was all gone due to infighting. It's a fascinating read. Wow. Yeah, I definitely need to get on that one. <clears throat> that does sound great. That's so interesting. So Streets of Rage, are you still like a brawler cooperative uh, you know, gamer? Or what's your current poison? Uh, I love finding games that you could still do catch co-op which doesn't exist pretty much anywhere but uh the ones that we still play my fiance and i um are all the super massive games so because you could just you can basically create the turns however you want and take a break and give it to someone else to take that turn so i love that there's still some that exist with that uh we're actually doing the same thing with alan wake right now um, a lot of horror games we do together because I love horror everything, but I'm also a little bit of a wimp with playing horror games. So um, having someone else to take some of the stuff that I, I anticipate is going to be scarier is more fun for me than doing it myself and shielding myself. Um, the other thing I'm into right now, because I've I've been struggling a little with finding some better RPGs to play. Uh, I got super into the cozy world 
of gaming. So it's a genre that doesn't technically exist, but it does if you search for it. Um, and then the more mainstream, I'll get into cozy games in a second, but the more mainstream stuff, I'm playing the the Spider-Man Miles Morales game so I could play the, sec the second Spider-Man right now because we got a PS5 and an OLED TV. That's what's behind me. And um, it's amazing. The graphics are incredible. Uh, being from New York, it's nice to see New York again. And uh, I love Miles Morales. I like that's probably my second favorite, if not first favorite character from a superhero movie outside of Batman. I'm a huge Batman nerd. So um, yeah, so playing those, but cozy gaming, <clears throat> basically um, Stardew Valley, that's like the entry to cozy gaming. It's things, and, and some people would even say that's not because cozy gaming is supposed to be things like Animal Crossing where there's just really no stress. It's very chill. You just get to do what you want and then you are done. Like you're there's no antagonist. Right, right. There's not really a lot with Stardew. There's a little bit of it. So it's a mixed bag of like you could go that route, but you could also not like you don't have to. And then the most stressful thing that happens is that your character will pass out and you'll lose some money. Um, so if you don't want to go in the caves, uh, I guess you could just farm in it. But at some point, I think you need the caves. Um, but there's a whole realm of these games that were made with the intention of just being more low stress, kind of relaxing environment. And I've somehow just like fell into this and I am finding all of these different cozy games. I literally was playing one called Cozy Grove um, <laughs> and I just got some on sale on Switch, um, one that's called Dredge, which is another one that's like a mix of a cozy game, but it's also creepy where you're a fisherman and you're pulling up these mutated fish and you need to like find the story of why are they mutated and um if you're out at night there's fog and these creatures will come and attack your ship so uh it's they're much more relaxing their artwork's usually more enjoyable and and you just kind of chill while you play instead of me playing Elden Ring and rage quitting uh after an hour of trying to beat Melania and failing miserably and still haven't beaten her so I haven't played the game in months <laughs> that's exactly what I'm playing right now so I just finished Alan Wake 2 um which is phenomenal um I am a huge Remedy fan like I'm fascinated by these sort of shared shared world of stories they've built even if some of them are unofficial because they did them under different companies uh, so they don't own all the characters. Um, but yeah, they're they're building something really impressive over there, both in terms of individual games like Control and Unwake 2, but the meta story that they're creating. But I think it's really interesting. You know, like you were talking about Elden Ring, like I'm on my second attempt because I first started playing it having never played a From Software game. And um, Elden Ring, for those of you that haven't already checked out, uh, if you're not into gaming, this might be a little difficult episode, but it's okay, stick with us. Like we're talking about story at the end of the day. Elden Ring is a game where it's like, it does not hold your hand in any way. And there is no clear indication of where to go, what to do, or what the story is. Like so many games, like people compare this to the more recent Zelda games where there's an open world and branching stories, depending on what you choose to do. This is not dissimilar, except the fact that it doesn't even tell you if you found a storyline. You might meet a lady on the side of the road who tells you that she's from a castle and could you take this to somebody. It doesn't tell you where that person is. It doesn't give you a reminder that that's something you should or could be doing. It doesn't give you a place on your map to go. It's it's very much like real life in the sense that, well, that's a thing you could do now if you choose to figure that out. Like, that's great. And uh, 
it's been called hard but fair. I don't know if that's accurate. Like hard might just be more accurate. Yeah, I would agree. Hard, hard is the correct answer. If you're not a big um, Souls style gamer, uh, Souls being this, basically you die a lot all the time. <laughs> That's literally what it is. Um, it was my first intro to From Software as well. And for me, I wanted to try it <clears throat> graphically. It was our first Xbox Series X game. So I wanted to try something on the new technology and it fell flat for me, but Cyberpunk did not. So Cyberpunk was the winner for me. Uh, my fiance, I had no idea. I didn't think he was going to like it. And he literally is obsessed with Souls games now um, and plays like every single one that he can get his hands on. And the harder, the better. And he'll sit there and get so angry uh, and furious. And I'm just like, that's not fun. <laughs> There's nothing fun about that to me. And then he'll finally beat the boss after however many attempts. It's like, that was fun. I was like, how? How is that fun? <laughs> but I, I get it. I totally it, get it. It's satisfying if you do it. It's, yeah. but it, like for soul style games, like you're describing, you're talking about how you die a lot. Unlike typical games where death is like a failure in souls games, it's part of the game cycle and mechanic. So games typically are described as having like a sort of play loop or play cycle, like the way that they're meant to be done. And like, uh, typically, you know, there's like discovery and like, you know, seeking something out, figuring out what's going on. In this case, in a Souls game, your character is meant to die. And when you do, you drop your essentially resources that you've collected and they sit there. And you can come back and collect them as long as you don't die again before you get there. So it's a real risk reward situation um, in terms of you're exploring a new area. You don't know if the enemies in that area are significantly stronger than you or not. Um, there's a lot of incentive to bug out if you get scared so you don't drop all your stuff. And if you do drop your stuff, you have to come back in um, really prepared or ready to move very quickly to get it, get out again. Um, I also resonate with what you were saying about Cyberpunk 2020. I've been talking with Andy Cockroof about this too. He's playing through it for the second time now. I just finished a playthrough for the second time. It came out like three or four years ago. It came out like right before or during COVID, I think. And when it released, it was initially very broken. And that's when I played it for the first time. And yeah. I thought it was an okay game at the time. Um, and, you know, I sort of enjoyed some aspects of it. I liked the setting and stuff, but it felt like very empty. It felt really broken. Um, when I came back to play it this time and I, the expansion came out while I was playing it and I played through that too, it was a much more satisfying experience. It felt like a real lived-in world. I felt really emotionally connected to a lot of the characters and storylines. And at the end of the day, there are some choices you have to make and you're not going to love any of them. And, you know, I made some choices and I felt bad about it. And the game ends and I'm like, whew, that was a really neat experience. Like I like uh, I, I, I like games for stories. Like while some games you just want to sit down and play through, like you're talking about your cozy games. Um, those are games where there's not like a plot line or anything. You're just engaging with something that's sort of a happy activity. Like it's it, I would say it's like those are almost akin to like doodling or knitting or something like that, like something where you're being passively creative. Um, whereas you've got games that are more story centric, like you're talking about the super massive games, like the dark pictures anthology or, uh, the quarry. I was talking with your fellow games night biz, uh, uh co-lead about, uh, Lewis about the quarry and how it was one of my favorite games the last few years. Like I'm somebody that didn't grow up watching scary stuff or horror movies and stuff. So like 
two years ago, I watched all the uh, Nightmare on Elm Street movies. Like I binged them at Halloween. And I was like, these are a lot funnier than I realized. Like I I remember seeing part of one on cable when I was a kid and being terrified. But I'm like, oh, these are goofy. Like I didn't know. But it's like, I appreciate the super massive games because unlike some games where they feel like, you know, the, the, the trope now is like we've got open world games where there's just like a huge expanse of world and you go around and explore and do stories. Super massive games are kind of games on rails where it's like there's been a plot line that's designated. You get to play as different characters and you have to make different choices. And depending on the choices you make, the story can branch a little bit, but your characters may or may not all live or may or may not all die. Like think about you're watching a horror movie, but you get to make some player, some character choices. And it's possible you might get everyone through the story, but it's also possible that any one of these characters that you end up playing as or sort of are related to them might get killed because of a choice you make. And it makes for interesting. It's like a choose your own adventure book like I used to read when I was a kid. Yeah, no, I agree. And I think they're more exciting than scary movies sometimes, especially because I feel like there's not a ton of good scary movies, although this year there have been a lot more fun ones that have come out. So um, they're getting better. But yeah, this is basically like you get to play through a scary movie and the characters in it are actors and they make them look like the actors. So it's just you feel even more connected to it from that lens. Um and they are a lot of fun. My favorite still remains of all the ones I've played by them is Until Dawn. They just haven't done it better than that original one. Uh, and that had a lot of characters in it that are really popular actors like Hayden Panettiere. Um, was it Remy? Remy, Remy Malik, yeah. Malik, he was in it too. One of the guys from uh, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Ward, he was in it too. There's just so many actors that were in it. And um, I think there's a missed opportunity for people who don't like gaming and they just kind of assume there's all the games are the same and it's like no this this would be a great opportunity for anyone that likes scary movies just to have a little fun with it around halloween just pick up a new one and it's very accessible too like there are some games like if if what you think gaming to be like i also like i don't use the term gamer like people say are you a gamer i'm like i don't really think that's a like, I think that's a thing in the sense that there's some people that like that's a defining attribute of who they are. And like this might just be my opinion on it. But I think everyone plays games to some capacity, even if it's your mom playing Bejeweled on your on her phone. So it's like we're past the point where this is sort of something that like kids do or is a niche thing. And it's something that people do akin to watching TV or reading books. Now, it, like in many cases, it's probably not as, you know, maybe intellectually rewarding as that, like. No one's going to claim Call of Duty makes you smarter or more well-rounded person, but that's more akin to going out and shooting hoops with your friends. Not physically, you're you're not going to get in better shape, but it satisfies that competitive element that, you know, really a lot of people need, right? Like a lot of people feel the need to be competitive in some capacity, but I don't know. I, I like the stories and I like, um, I like the capacity for storytelling, which games give us that go in many ways beyond books and movies because in books you're obviously part of the creative process more than movies where you're having to imagine the world and you're giving the characters voices and stuff in games while you're not imagining the world giving the characters voices you're determining the choices that they make and depending on the tool set that you've been given by whoever created this that can you know create a lot of interesting opportunities it can also create like a lot of interesting challenges so I learned about this phrase like last week, and I've been thinking about it to talk to you about. Have you ever heard the term ludonarrative dissidence before? Maybe. Okay. Not I'm going to do, 
<laughs> I'm going to do my best to explain this. Okay? okay. So I was reading some stuff and I watched a video about it. And uh, this person, particular person picked out the naughty dog games, which are PlayStation exclusive games as an example. So naughty dog is famous for two different franchises, um, both of which you could now watch on TV some in some capacity. So the uncharted games, which are kind of like Indiana Jones and the last of us, which is kind of like a zombie series to a degree. I'm, I'm being broad here. Um, but the gist of it is ludonarrative dissonance is when the gameplay itself, like what you're doing as the main play of the game, conflicts with the narrative that's being presented. So a great example of this is, um, I'm trying not to spoil too much, but yeah, in the Uncharted series, now. you play as, you, yeah, like, like the, the big example uh, would be in uh, Last of Us Part Two. Mm -hmm. where a significant character is murdered um, and it's the game becomes a quest for vengeance. Um, and towards the end of the game, a character has makes a choice whether to seek vengeance or not on a specific person. Having said that, the main gameplay mechanic of The Last of Us is shooting and killing lots of other people. So along the way to decide whether or not it's moral and correct to kill this other person, you've probably killed 500 other people without considering their morality, whether they have families, all this stuff. So it's something that comes in direct conflict. Similarly, in their other franchise, um, uh, Uncharted, where Nathan Drake is sort of a happy-go-lucky Nathan Fillion-esque treasure hunter. You know, he's really a nice guy. He's he's really, you know, he's really chill. He just wants to hunt for treasures. And then, like, in this particular thing, you ended up shooting, like, 50 guys. And it's like, at the end of the day, it's like, it just rolls off his back. Like, it's not really a thing. But it's like, in reality, if he had done this like either he's a total psycho because he's wholly unaffected by just shooting all these people or like i don't know he's just incredibly detached like how how you know how does that work as a, as a person so like when the the central conceit doesn't play as well like in cyberpunk in the i know you've heard this a thousand times the opening credits they have this initial uh video that plays with a newscaster talking about uh, hey, out of Haywood, we've got a solid and sturdy 30, like of all the people that were like murdered in that terrible section of town. And I'm like, I think on your average mission, I'm the cause of all those like individually, like maybe the rest of Night City is totally fine. Like maybe I'm the problem. Yeah. Yep. No, as soon as you started, as soon as you defined it, I was like, yep, I've heard of this. And I know exactly what what you mean. Um, it's interesting how they do that especially the last of us because you become so connected to the characters and for anyone that watches that on hbo and um is still teetering with the idea of gaming that was almost like a shot for shot exact translation of that game there were a couple of differences and some of them were i think really good beneficial additions um but some of the scenes and some of the episodes were exactly like the game. So uh, that's just a, an aside. But you go through this whole story, even in the show, and you're you're creating this relationship and building this relationship with these characters. And even in the first one, there's things that you have to do that you're just like, I don't want to do this, but there's no option not to. Uh, that's the way that the game is going to take you and you have to do it. Um, some of them play with honor and giving you some honor. Red Dead Redemption 2 tries to put it, I mean, it's in the name, Redemption. So there's some opportunities there for redemption, but 
in some of these games there isn't. And I walked away from them just chills, like even thinking about some of those moments specifically where there is this moral conflict. That is where I get like the biggest chills or the biggest excitement out of it. And those are the games that I always recommend to people because the story development was so intense that it makes you have this crazy reaction to it. That was just like, I did not want to do that. And that was awful. Like what a horrible person, but I love this game. Like, Mm -hmm. like it's, it's crazy how they can do that. And I think that's like pure artistry and being able to execute that so successfully. It's something, it's something unique that games can do that many other mediums can't because it makes you actively have a hand in what takes place. So you feel some, some part of the responsibility or the stakes. I think that the time maybe I felt that most profoundly um, is uh, Metal Gear Solid 3. So Hideo Kojima is, um, is sort of an auteur game creator. Like he's brilliant and bizarre and his games are complex. His narratives are weird and dense and uh, leave a lot of room for analysis. But his main series that he's been known for before he started his own uh, studio and franchises was a series called Metal Gear. Um, And this is sort of a military industrial complex commentary with espionage, giant robots and superpowers. It's as strange as it sounds. but you play as varying characters named Snake throughout the franchise um, who may or may not uh, look, I don't know, exactly like Kurt Russell, depending, or the cover of the Terminator 1 box art with Michael Bain. Um, anyway, having said that, in Metal Gear Solid 3, um, you're playing as a character that's undercover. You've been sent under by um, your, your sort of handler who's codenamed the boss. Um, and you find out at the end of the game, the boss is a traitor. And you have a final confrontation with this character. And it's, uh, you know, it's a hand-to-hand combat fight in the middle of a field of flowers. Like, it's very intense and personal and up close, especially since your character is feeling these feelings of betrayal. This entire series of events has been set off by someone that's misled you. Um, You defeat the boss, killing her. Uh, The credits start playing um, with a truly, truly depressing song by Star Sailor. And uh, you find out mid-credits, the boss wasn't actually a traitor. The boss um, presented herself as a traitor to make sure you could keep your cover. And you just killed your own mentor. And you're like, oh, my gosh. Like, you're just sitting there as this is playing. And you're like, what did I just do? Like, you know, you've been playing this long game. It's a heavily involved story. And, like, you've become invested in these characters. And you're like, I just killed, like, a good guy. Like, what? Oh, man. That even just hearing them, I'm just like, what? That's that's insane. So now I spoiled a like a 20 year old game for you if well, you haven't played that, but you know. I think the it's met the timeline of right, like right. The, the moratorium <laughs> closes after two decades. Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah, it's really fascinating how they can do that. Like, um, there have been more recent games, I say more recent, like within the past 15 years, Bioshock famously uses in-game mechanics. So, for example, you have a character that communicates to you over the radio, giving you certain information. And they're like, hey, go over here and do this thing. And, you know, your assumption is this is a very standard gameplay mechanic that you have a reliable narrator that's helping you. And every time they say, would you kindly go do this? And you find out partway through the game, would you kindly, within the story established by the game, is a hypnotic trigger that this person has used on you to get you to actually 
act as their operative. Like it's not just something they say it's you've been manipulated this entire time. And it's really kind of shattering because it's one of those things that sort of kicks down the fourth wall between you and the game inside. Similarly, the, the original Metal Gear Solid by Hideo Kojima has a boss battle named Psycho Mantis. And his whole thing is he, he says he can read your mind. And to prove it, he says, put your controller down on the ground. And using the controller's rumble feature, he makes your controller move back and forth across the ground. And then he starts talking to you. It's like, I see you've been playing a lot of Street Fighter. Like He starts talking to you about things that are saved on your memory card of the console. It's truly bizarre. And he can also predict every shot you're going to make and always dodge them. And the game hints you have to use your subconscious mind in order to defeat him. And what this actually means is on the PlayStation 1, you had to unplug your controller from control port 1, plug it into control port 2, and it says, what? I can't read your mind. And then all your shots can hit. Oh, man. That's insane. That's a really cool concept. I feel like I have not heard of anything like that in, in recent gaming. It's it's well, bizarre. Like I think the very first time I encountered this is back on Sega Genesis. And I didn't know what it was, and I never was able to beat the game, but they had an X-Men game on Sega Genesis. And there's a part where you make it late in the game where it says, you need to reset the computer. And that's what it says. It's just you and your screen, your character on screen, like as a screen with computers behind you, but there's nothing to interact with. And you're like, what does that mean? And it literally... You had to press the reset button on your console. It would boot the game back up to the original screen and then would continue on a mission. But no one in their right mind would ever do that because, you know, pressing the reset button kills your game. So they yeah. create like unless they explicit press the reset button on your Sega Genesis console right now. Like even then you'd feel like you were being trolled and we didn't even know what that meant back then. Yeah. Oh, man. That's like a whole new whole new thing i had no idea any of that existed that's awesome <laughs> yeah so it's that's one of my fascinations like basically you know reaching beyond the game and uh sort of you know i i was saying this to somebody recently i think i was talking to cj mays like when's the last time you look at a data viz and you like really felt something like really felt something emotional and i think it's very infrequent i think that's something we struggle with in sort of the medium that we often work in like even when it's something we've, we're very passionate about, it can be really difficult to get that emotion like through it. You know, it's like, and I think that's one of those distinctions maybe between art and data viz. Sometimes there is data art, um, mm -hmm. but like data visualization itself, we struggle with a little bit more sometimes. I, Georgia Lupi had a really interesting thing that's been going around this past week. Um, apparently she has long COVID and she made a visualization of it sort of using these sort of artistic brush strokes to represent different symptoms she's had over the past several years. And I thought that was, was really uh, like, I, you, you wouldn't be, it's not a best practice. Like, obviously like you wouldn't use this at work, but like looking at it um, and just seeing the profound amount of days she's had symptoms and how many there are and how frequent they've been, it was really emotionally affecting. And I think, uh, you know, sort of, the balance between clarity and attention grabbing is one of those things that we often struggle with in our field where it can be really easy to grab attention sometimes, but maybe you sacrifice the clearest way of communicating something, or you could be incredibly clear, but no one ever looks at it because you didn't give them a reason to draw them in. So, you know, finding that balance can be so difficult. Yeah, it is. It is very hard to do that. And, um, there are some that are really successful at it. So um, <clears throat> I'm part of the 
Elevate Data Viz Mentorship Program, and the leaders of that are all very good at doing that. Um, so that's Gabrielle Marite. She does a lot with that. I don't, I don't want to call it humanism because it's beyond that. There's a lot more to it than that. But then Ali Torvin, Will Chase, and Duncan Gear. So like they all do really different things. Um, Duncan does a lot with sonification of data. Um, so that's using sound with your data. So there's different ways to hit at it and try to find what effectively lands. And it is, it's really hard when you don't have something to add that element to grab someone, especially when I feel like we live in the world of reels right now, um, which are videos and they're short and they're quick. And it's really hard to do that with a viz, um, especially if it's something that's static. So it takes a lot of thought process into what you want your narrative to be. Um, and I find that sometimes it's worth it to do a presentation with it so that you can tell the story because that changes how you have someone relate to it and how they interact with it. Or it's, it, it's a way that you can allow them to have a reaction because you're walking them through like what you wanted them to see more clearly. Um, my master's actually, my thesis, I got feedback on it when I presented my thesis that standalone, they weren't sure it was gonna be as effective in eliciting the reaction it did as when I presented it. And I, I totally understand that, but I wanted it to be complimentary so that there was a reason why I was talking to you um, and really hit that further home. Uh, and that's, it's really hard to do it without having a way to, to get in there. And um, that Georgia Loopy one is, is really effective. Uh, and it's, I, I agree. I think there is that like data art piece that can help you get there. Um, but it's, it's more than that too, of really just, you need to take that time and really think about like, what are you trying to say? What are you trying to evoke? And at some point it's, it's not really about like what, you want others to feel, it's what you feel, and you just want someone to react to that feeling because you can't control how someone else is going to feel about what you put out there. They could be angry about that. I'm sure there are people that are angry about that, <laughs> but then there's people that could feel um, compassion or emotion towards it. You don't know. Um, so it's really about like how much of what you do and what you feel do you want to vulnerably put on display for someone else to evoke that reaction. Yeah, I think that's really true. And I think, you know, at, at having a sort of performative element to data visualization, like I think many of us have seen, you know, the famous uh, TED Talk. Um, oh my gosh, I'm blanking. Where Hans Rosling is showing, you know, sort of the progression of, uh, you know, countries moving out of poverty. Um, and, you know, and he uses animations and it's a scatter plot. He's showing these countries progress uh, to the right and upward, showing them sort of move out of sort of lower tiers of development and the higher ones where people have, you know, better resources and higher childhood survival rates and vaccination rates and stuff like that. And he's announcing it like he is like a soccer, you know, <laughs> commentator, like he, he's super excited. And it's, you know, what we can bring to stuff really can amp stuff up and many times when we're not able there to present something and that like 
at work, I'll use uh, visual overlays to as a introduction to this to say, hey, look, here's what's going on here. Here are the things you need to look at and how to interact with them and that sort of thing. On my uh, my personal projects to put out online, I can be a lot more editorial. I can be sarcastic or like, you know, I can, I can Jeff Schaefer once um, said this is this is fantastic where I commented. Uh, I had added a how to read this, but instead I said, what the F does this even mean? And it's like that catches people's eyes because it's it's a more informal way of like grabbing attention. And it's, you know, attention grabbing. Um, it sounds self-serving, but if it's in in service to the story and the data, it can be really impactful and useful. It's why, like, I always try to make sure I have an interesting title. So, like, what is that? You know, like, get people curious and I'll make sure to be really careful with my title font. You know, it's like, that's something that I've sort of developed over time. But like, you know, you obviously have, we have art masters out there and it's like, I'm not that in any capacity. And I'm not trying to be like, I, I'm in a different lane entirely, but it's like, I'm trying to find how do I leverage charts? Many of which are mostly fairly standard in a way that's elevated. I have a project I'm working on right now. I don't, I typically don't announce projects I'm working on because I don't know if I'll give up on it. But um, my oldest daughter recently um, is reading the first Hunger Games book and got into the movies. So we watched them. I'd watched them for the first time in like 10 years or so. And uh, I love Stanley Tucci's character, Caesar Flickerman. He's like my favorite thing in the movies where he's this bombastic, overly emotional, like commentator who's presenting the games and the contestants. And he's so into it. And it's like he he has grown up in the Capitol and he is so divorced from the uh, lunacy and cruelty of sacrificing children for entertainment. Like he doesn't even think about it as that. Like, he's just like the games are so exciting. I love it all, you know? Um, so I'm doing a data visualization of the 74th hunger games, which is the first book or first movie. Um, and uh, like the stats and it's like the, Hey, this is who killed who, when, uh, these are your winners. And I'm having it presented, um, narratively from the perspective of Caesar Flickerman, uh, and juxtaposed against a data analyst who's presenting the charts from uh, District 3. So Caesar's all excited about everything, and the analyst is, like, dying inside because he's having to talk about, like, these children that they just sent off. So, I mean, I'm using very standard charts. I'm actually using just bar charts and essentially a heat map, and it's all going to sort of coalesce at the bottom of the page into a, um, you know, sort of... Uh, histogram heat map combination very much like steve wexler would teach um it's sort of like baby's first data viz but with a narrative sweetener and it's it's a interesting way to describe the events of the movie in such a way that draws attention to the ridiculous horribleness of it but without just being like grim dark so it's 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 an experiment for me but it's like you don't have to go crazy with charts or anything to like come up with a creative way to express an idea. Yeah, I love that. That sounds amazing. So I'll be excited if you do finish that. And if not, you could just put it in the design cemetery and you could still share it. So that's that, what I do. <laughs> that's true. I've done that before. I had one that I I had uh, I had found like San Francisco municipal salary data. And I discovered like four examples in it over a decade where people just received insane salaries, like for one year that just blew out all the rest of the data. Cause I was wanting to do an analysis of like different tiers or job types or whatever. And these that like, I ended up calling it flies in the ointment because literally these like four data points destroyed my entire analysis. 
So instead of analyzing everything else, I just started like looking up newspaper articles and everything else to figure out why did these people get paid so much? This is crazy. And like, they're not like the mayor. It's like, you know, assistant police chief so-and-so made like this, like $2 million. It's like, oh, he had like 20,000 hours of overtime. I'm like, what now? Like, how's that? (laughs) So like, I started going like bizarrely investigative on it just because I was so frustrated that I didn't get to do what I wanted with the data. But I think that's so interesting because that's really the story of so many data things where we we know what we think it should be saying or, you know, that sort of thing. And I could have just said, oh, I removed four outliers from this like that. That would be what might happen in many cases, because if there's outliers that are ruining the main portion of it, you might make that choice depending on what your purview is. But in this case, I'm like, no, like, let's let's talk about this, like the this you know, elephant in the room of why these people made so much money. Yeah, no, that's, that is a really great point. And um, it almost creates like a different narrative. I, I do feel like there's times though, where you might generally just any designer, you might feel discouraged to keep going after you've disproved yourself or uh, your theory of what you were working towards. And you're just like, oh, forget it. I just, I can't even look at this anymore. And that sounds super interesting. (laughs) So it's just like, before you think of getting rid of it, like there's nothing wrong with just hitting the reset button. That's part of being analytical is just, you're never going to hit it right the first time. Um, And that's the whole point because you're analyzing it and you might get to the end and finish your whole thing and look at it and and you're like, Oh, this is not substantial. Uh, I need to redo it. Um, and that could be really discouraging or just uh, <laughs> degrading after all the time you spend on it. But um, people still want to see stuff like that because someone else might be struggling with the same thing. And then they see that as an opportunity. So uh, no work done is ever bad work in my mind. <laughs> I feel that. So let's talk games nights fizz. I know we're we're coming up on an hour. I'm not going to keep you too much longer. But like, how did the three of you end up all coming together on this? And like, what was your inspiration? I mean, community projects crop up here and there as people sort of find their own lane and get inspired. And clearly, this is something that uh, you, Will, and Lewis all are really into. But like, were you all three like like buddies before this? Like, hey, we should do this thing. Or like, how did it happen? Yeah, I have to give Will all the the credit this was definitely his idea and then he had contacted Lewis and I um but Lewis and I actually knew each other before because we were in the same master's program so um and I don't think either one of us realized that Will had reached out to both of us so it's like we we were both connected after he contacted us but didn't realize that we were both asked to be a part of it um we just had commiserated through our master's program and talked about games half the time. So we we knew from that that we were connected. Um, getting into it, I, I will say at this point, um, Will and Lewis are definitely leading the charge. I'm there more supportively. Um, life happens sometimes and they've been extremely awesome about that and patient with me. So I very much appreciate our partnership. Um, but yeah, they just they have a plan and um, sometimes I have an idea and we just throw them together and we, we chat and they 
we get it out and and then we have a next plan. So the very first year, I feel like we had varying challenges based on the different levels. And then um, after we finished that, we refreshed it this year and we took a different approach. And then we just had a post go out, <clears throat> excuse me, a few days ago, which it resurfaces more about like your games coming out. So we're trying to do it so that it's a little bit more timely of like, this is coming out now, try this one, try this game. This is going to be a huge game. Um, things like that to try and just garner more attention around it. But then also not just about the video games. I think that's also a big piece of it. It's just games are games. Uh, it doesn't matter what. So even with last year's Iron Viz, when we did like our favorites, um, one of the ones I picked wasn't an actual video game. It was tennis. So um, that's still a game. It still counts. And uh, I think that really opens the door to everyone if someone wants to participate because there's so many different ways you could go with it. Um, it's just really about, I think for us, it's it's more about just like finding that thing you're passionate about and really just doing something fun with it. Um, and learning along the way is always a good plus in the, in the process. I think, I think it's time for a sports viz Sunday games night viz collaboration. You know, like I, I want to see that crossover. I want, I want to see them covering rockstar tennis. Like that's, yeah. that's what I, that's what I need out of this. Yeah. We can do some sort of elimination gauntlet or something with different characters and see who would shake out from a randomizer or something. <laughs> That sounds fantastic. <laughs> oh man, I have had uh, the greatest time talking to you today. Uh, this is this is my last episode of the year, um, as I said. So, like, self should talk about video games for forty minutes, but I don't think so. Like, I think there's, you know, at the end of the day, we're storytellers. We just do it in a different medium, and I think the more stories you expose yourself to, and the more storytelling techniques, uh, the more uh, we all up ourselves. So, you know. Think about stories, think about what works in them and what doesn't, and think about how you can apply that across mediums, you know? Yeah, I totally agree. That's my my favorite thing of what we do is getting to tell a story. That's the best part of it. So I'm all with you on that. <laughs> Thank Fantastic. you for having me. Absolutely. Thank you for coming. Is there anything you want to shout out or promote before we wrap up today? Uh, I think, I mean, we got the Game Night Viz shout out there. So I definitely would recommend keeping up with myself, Lewis and Will. Uh, we got some fun stuff coming for next year. And uh, I also will do a quick shout out for Elevate Data Viz. Uh, I mentioned it earlier, but it is a mentorship program. And um, it also opens the door to just a lot of different opportunities. If you're looking for something or if you're just looking for additional guidance, they have the, the leaders are fantastic. And um, it's... Uh, it's just a really great opportunity to learn, uh, identify more resources, and it's more accessible than trying to find a master's program. So um, just going to shout them out and just thank them because I've, I've learned so much from them already in the last year. So, yeah. Amazing. Everyone check both those out. Uh, Tina, thank you for coming. Uh, thanks, everyone, for listening to uh, year slash season four of Data Plus Love. We'll be back in two weeks with the beginning of season slash year five. Uh, thanks everyone for listening. Um, you know, smash that like button, leave a comment. No, just uh, tell your friends. Um, you know, hit you know, give us five stars on Apple Podcasts, uh, whatever. But really, uh, we do this because uh, 
we like talking to people and it's been great to talk to Tina. <laughs>